Chapter 14 of Syria, the Desert, and the Sown. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tad Davis in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Syria, the Desert, and the Sown by Gertrude Bell. Chapter 14. A further acquaintance with Antioch did not destroy the impressions of the first evening. The more I wandered through the narrow paved streets, the more delightful did they appear. Except the main thoroughfare, which is the bazaar, they were almost empty. My footsteps on the cobblestones broke through years of silence. The shallow gables covered with red tiles gave a charming and very distinctive note to the whole city, and shuttered balconies jutted out from house to house. Of the past, there is scarcely a vestige. Two fine sarcophagi, adorned with putti and garlands, and with the familiar, and I fancy typically Asiatic motive of lions devouring bulls, stand in the Serea, and one similar to these, but less elaborate, by the edge of the Daphne Road, I saw, too, a fragment of a classical entablature in the courtyard of a Turkish house, and a scrap of wall in the main street that may certainly be dated earlier than the Mohammedan invasion. Its courses of alternate brick and stone resembled the work on the Acropolis. For the rest, the Antioch of Seleucus Nicator is a city of the imagination only. The island on which it was built has disappeared owing to the changing of the riverbed, but tradition places it above the modern town. The banks of the Orontes must have been lined with splendid villas. I was told that the foundations of them were brought to light whenever a man dug deep enough through the silt, and that small objects of value, such as coins and bronzes, were often unearthed. Many such were brought to me for sale, but I judged them to be forgeries of an unskillful kind, and I was confirmed in my opinion by a Turkish pasha, Rifat Aga, who has occupied his leisure in making a collection of antiquities. He possesses a fine series of Seleucid coins, the earlier nearly as good as the best Sicilian, the later nearly as bad as the worst Byzantine and a few bronze lamps, one of which, in the shape of a curly-haired eros head, is a beautiful example of Roman work. The aga presented me with a small head, which I take to have been a copy of the head of Antioch with a high crown, and though it was but roughly worked, it possessed some distinction borrowed from a great original. Forty years ago, the walls and towers of the Acropolis were still almost perfect. They are now almost destroyed. The inhabitants of Antioch declare that the city is rocked to its foundations every half-century, and they are in instant expectation of another upheaval, the last having occurred in 1862. But it is prosperity, not earthquake, that has wrought the havoc in the fortress. The town is admirably situated in its rich valley and connected with the port of Alexandretta by a fairly good road. It might easily become a great commercial center, and even under Turkish rule it has grown considerably in the past fifty years, 
and grown at the expense of the Acropolis. To spare himself the trouble of quarrying, the Oriental will be deterred by no difficulty, and in spite of the labor of transporting the dressed stones of the fortress to the foot of the exceedingly steep hill on which it stands, all the modern houses have been built out of materials taken from it. The work of destruction continues. The stone facing is quickly disappearing from the walls, leaving only a core of a rubble and mortar which succumbs in a short time to the action of the weather. I made the whole circuit of the fortress one morning, and it took me three hours. To the west of the summit of Mount Silpius, a rocky cleft seamed the hillside. It was full of rock-cut tombs, and just above my camp an ancient aqueduct spanned it. On the left hand of the cleft, the line of wall dropped by precipitous rocks to the valley. Where large fragments remained, it was evident that the stone facing had alternated with bands of brick, and that sometimes the stone itself had been varied by courses of smaller and larger blocks. The fortifications embraced a wide area, the upper part leading by gentle slopes covered with brushwood and ruined foundations to the top of the hill. In the west wall there was a narrow, massive stone door with a lintel of jointed blocks and a relieving arch above it. The south wall was broken by towers. The main citadel was at the southeast corner. From here the walls dropped down again steeply to the city and passed some distance to the east of it. They can be traced, I believe, to the Orontes. I did not follow their course, but climbed down from the citadel by a stony path into a deep gorge that cuts through the eastern end of the hill. The entrance to this gorge is guarded by a strong wall of brick and stone, which is called the Gate of Iron, and beyond it the fortifications climb the opposite side of the ravine and are continued along the hilltop. I do not know how far they extend. The ground was so rough and so much overgrown with bushes that I lost heart and turned back. There was a profusion of flowers among the rocks, marigold, asphodel, cyclamen, and iris. Beyond the gorge of the Iron Gate on the hillside facing the Orontes, there is a cave which tradition calls the Cave of St. Peter. The Greek communion has erected a little chapel at its mouth. Yet further along the hill is a still more curious relic of ancient Antioch, the head of a sphinx carved in relief upon a rock some twenty feet high. Folded about her brow, she wears a drapery that falls on either side of her face and ends where the throat touches the bare breast. Her featureless countenance is turned slightly up the valley as though she watched for one that shall yet come out of the east. If she could speak, she might tell us of great kings and gorgeous pageants, of battle and of siege, for she has seen them all from her rock on the hillside. She still remembers that the Greeks she knew marched up from Babylonia, and since even the Romans did not teach her that the living world lies westward, I could not hope to enlighten her, and so left her watching for some new thing out of the east. There was another pilgrimage to be made from Antioch. It was to Daphne, the famous shrine that marked the spot where the nymph baffled the desire of the god. The House of the Waters, it is called in Arabic. 
It lies to the west of the town, about an hour's ride along the foot of the hills, and in the spring a more enchanting ride could not be found. The path led through an exquisite boscage of budding green, set thickly with flowering hawthorn and with the strange purple of the Judas tree. Then it crossed a low spur and descended into a steep valley through which a stream tumbled towards the Arantes. No trace remains of the temples that adorned this fairest of all sanctuaries. Earthquakes and the mountain torrents have swept them down the ravine. But the beauty of the site has not diminished since the days when the citizens of the most luxurious capital in the east dallied there with the girls who served the god. The torrent does not burst noisily from the mountainside. It is born in a deep, still pool that lies, swathed in a robe of maidenhair fern, in thickets annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade. From the pool issues a translucent river, unbroken of surface, narrow and profound. It runs into swirls and eddies, and then into foaming cataracts and waterfalls that toss their white spray into the branches of mulberry and plain. Under the trees stand eleven watermills. The ragged millers are the only inhabitants of Apollo's shrine. They brought us walnuts to eat by the edge of the stream, and small antique gems that had dropped from the ornaments of those who sought pleasures less innocent, perhaps, than ours, by the banks of the St. Torrent. It is impossible to travel in North Syria without acquiring a keen interest in the Seleucid kings, backed by a profound respect for their achievements in politics and in the arts. I was determined, therefore, to visit, before I pushed north, the site of Seleucia Pyria, the port of Antioch and the burial place of Seleucus Nicator. Inland capital and seaport sprang into being at the same moment and were both part of one great conception that turned the lower reaches of the Orontes into a rich and populous market. In those days, kings could create world-famous cities with a wave of the scepter, and the Seleucids were not backward in following the example Alexander had set them. Like Apamea, Seleucia has shrunk to the size of a hamlet, or perhaps it would be truer to say that it has split up into several hamlets covered by the name of Suedia. The nomenclature is confusing, as each group of farms or huts has a separate title. The spacing of the population at the mouth of the Orontes is due to the occupation in which the inhabitants of the villages are engaged. They are raisers of silkworms, an industry that requires during about a month in the spring such continuous attention that every man must live in the center of his mulberry groves and is consequently separated by the extent of them from his neighbors. After three hours' ride through a delicious country of myrtle thickets and mulberry gardens, we reach Suedia, a military post and the most important of the scattered villages. Here, for the first and only time, on my journey, I was stopped by an officer, the worse for Harak, who demanded my passport. Now, passport, I had none. I had lost it in the Jebel Zawiya when I lost my coat, and it is a proof of how little bound by red tape the Turkish official can show himself to be that I traveled half the length of the Ottoman Empire without a paper to my name. 
On this occasion, the Zaptia, who was with me, demonstrated with some heat that he would not have been permitted to accompany me if I had not been a respectable and accredited person, and after a short wrangle, we were allowed to pursue our way. The reason of this meticulous exactitude was soon made clear. The villages on the coast contain large colonies of Armenians. They are surrounded by military stations to prevent the inhabitants from escaping either inland to other parts of the empire or by sea to Cyprus, and the comings and goings of strangers are carefully watched. One of the objects that the traveler should ever set before himself is to avoid being drawn into the meshes of the Armenian question. It was the tacit conviction of the learned during the Middle Ages that no such thing as an insoluble question existed. There might be matters that presented serious difficulties, but if you could lay them before the right man, some Arab in Spain, for instance, omniscient by reason of studies into the details of which it was better not to inquire, he would give you a conclusive answer. The real trouble was only to find your man. We, however, have fallen from that faith. We have proved by experience that there are, alas, many problems insoluble to the human intelligence, and of that number, the Turkish Empire owns a considerable proportion. The Armenian question is one of them, and the Macedonian question is another. In those directions, madness lies. It was with the determination not to waver in a decision that had contributed largely, I make no doubt, to happy and prosperous journeyings, that I rode down to Chaulik, the port of ancient Seleucia. I found my resolve the less difficult to observe, because the Armenians talked little but Armenian and Turkish, at any rate, the few words of Arabic that some of them possessed were not sufficient to enable them to enter into a detailed account of their wrongs. He who served me that afternoon as a guide was a man of so cheerful a disposition that he would certainly have selected by preference a different topic. His name was Ibrahim, he was bright-eyed and intelligent, and his cheerfulness was deserving of praise since his yearly income amounted to no more than 400 piastres, under two pounds of English money. From this he proposed to save enough to bribe the Turkish officials at the port that they might wink at his escape in an open boat to Cyprus. For, said he, there is no industry here but the silkworms, and they give me work for two months in the year, and for the other ten I have nothing to do and no way of earning money. He also informed me that the Nosiris, who inhabited the adjoining villages, were unpleasant neighbors. There is a feud between you, said I. I, voila, said he, with emphatic assent, and related in illustration the long story of a recent conflict, which, as far as it was comprehensible, seemed to have been due entirely to the aggressions of the Armenians. Uh, but you began the stealing, said I, when he had concluded. Yes, said he, the Nosiris are dogs. And he added with a smile, I was imprisoned in Aleppo for two years afterwards. By God, you deserved it, said I. Yes, said he, as cheerfully as ever.
And this, I rejoice to say, was all that Ibrahim contributed to the store of evidence on the Armenian question. The Bay of Seleucia is not unlike the Bay of Naples and scarcely less beautiful. A precipitous ridge of the hills, honeycombed with rock-hewn tombs and chambers, forms a background to the mulberry gardens and, sweeping round, encloses the bay to the north. Below it lie the walls and water gates of the port, silted up with earth and separated from the sea by a sandy beach. The Orontes flows through sand and silk farther to the north, and the view is closed by a steep range of hills, culminating at the southern point in the lovely peak of Mount Cassius, which takes the place of Vesuvius in the landscape. I pitched my camp near the northern barrier in a little cove divided from the rest of the bay by a low spur, which ran out into a ruin-covered headland that commanded the whole sweep of the coast, and I pleased myself with the fancy that it was on this point that the temple and tomb of Seleucus Nicator had stood, though I do not know whether its exact situation has ever been determined. Below it, on the beach, lay an isolated rock in which a columned hall had been excavated. This hall was fragrant of the sea and fresh with the salt winds that blew through it, a very temple of nymphs and tritons. Ibrahim took me up and down the face of the precipitous cliffs by little paths and by an old chariot road that led to the city on the summit of the plateau. He said that to walk round the enclosing wall of the upper city took six hours, but it was too hot to put his statement to the test. We climbed into an immense number of the artificial caves, in many of which there were no loculi. They may have been intended for dwellings or storehouses rather than for tombs. At this time of the year, they were all occupied by the silkworm breeders, who were now at their busiest moment, the larvae having just issued from the egg. The entrance of each cave was blocked by a screen of green boughs to keep out the sun, and the afternoon light filtered pleasantly through the budding leaves. At the southern end of the cliff there was a large necropolis consisting of small caves set round with loculi and of rock-hewn sarcophagi decorated, when they were decorated at all, with the garland motive that adorns the sarcophagi at Antioch. The most important group of tombs was at the northern end of the cliff. The entrance to it was by a pillared portico that led into a double cave. The larger chamber contained some thirty to forty loculi and a couple of canopy tombs, the canopies cut out of the living rock. The smaller held about half the number of loculi. The roof of it was supported by pillars and pilasters, and I noticed above the tombs a roughly cut design consisting of a scroll of ivy-shaped and of indented leaves. The builders of Seleucia seem to have been much preoccupied with the distribution of the water supply. Ibrahim showed me, along the face of the cliff, a channel some two feet wide and five feet high, which was cut three or four feet behind the surface of the rock and carried water from one end of the city to the other. We traced its course by occasional air holes or breaches in the outer wall of rock. The most difficult problem must have been the management of the torrent that flowed down a gorge to the north of the town. A great gallery had been hewn through the spur to the south of my camp, 
to conduct the water to the sea and prevent it from swamping the houses at the foot of the cliff. The local name for this gallery is the Garis. It began at the mouth of a narrow ravine and was tunneled through a massive rock for several hundred yards, after which it continued as a deep cutting open to the air till it reached the end of the spur. At the entrance of the tunnel there was an inscription in clear-cut letters, Divis Vespasianus, it began, but the rest was buried in the rocky ground. There were several others along the further course of the Garis, all of them in Latin. I imagine that the work was not Seleucid, but Roman. To one more spectacle, Ibrahim tempted me. He declared that if I would follow him through the mulberry gardens below the cliff, he would show me a person made of stone. My curiosity was somewhat jaded by the heat and the long walk, but I toiled back wearily over stones and other obstacles to find a god, bearded and robed, sitting under the mulberry trees. He was not a very magnificent god. His attitude was stiff, his robe roughly fashioned, and the top of his head was gone, but the low sun gilded his marble shoulder, and the mulberry boughs whispered his ancient titles. We sat down beside him, and Ibrahim remarked, There is another buried in this field, a woman, but she is deep, deep under the earth. Have you seen her? said I. Yes, said he, the owner of the field buried her, for he thought she might bring him ill luck. Perhaps if you gave him money, he might dig her up. I did not rise to the suggestion. She was probably better left to the imagination. Close to the statue, I saw a long molded cornice, which was apparently in situ, though the wall it crowned was buried in a cornfield. So thickly does the earth cover the ruins of Seleucia. Some day there will, will be much to disclose here, but excavation will be exceedingly costly owing to the deep silt and to the demands of the proprietors of Mulberry Grove and Cornfield. The site of the town is enormous and will require years of digging if it is to be properly explored. Near my tents, a sluggish stream flowed through clumps of yellow iris and formed a pool in the sand. It provided water for our animals and for the flocks of goats that Armenian shepherd boys herded morning and evening along the margin of the sea. The spot was so attractive and the weather so delightful that I spent an idle day there, the first really idle day since I had left Jerusalem. And as I could not hope to examine Seleucia exhaustively, I resolved to see no more of it than was visible from my tent door. This excellent decision gave me twenty-four hours, to which I look back with the keenest satisfaction, though there is nothing to be recorded of them, except that I was not to escape so lightly from Armenian difficulties as I had hoped. I received in the morning a long visit from a woman who had walked down from Kabusa, a village at the top of the gorge above the Garis. She spoke English, a tongue she had acquired at the missionary schools of Khaintab, her home in the Kurdish mountains. Her name was Kaimet. She had left Khaintab upon her marriage, a step she had never ceased to regret, 
for though her husband was a good man and an honest, he was so poor that she did not see how she was to bring up her two children. Besides, said she, the people around Cabuset, the Cyres, and Armenians alike, were all robbers, and she begged me to help her to escape to Cyprus. She told me a curious piece of family history, which showed how painful the position of the sect must be in the heart of a Mohammedan country, if it cannot be cited as an instance of official oppression. Her father had turned Muslim when she was a child, chiefly because he wished to take a second wife. Kaimet's mother had left him and supported her children as best she might, rather than submit to the indignity that he had thrust upon her, and the bitter quarrel had darkened, said Kaimet, all her own youth. She sent her husband down next morning with a hen and a copy of verses written by herself in English. I paid for the hen, but the verses were beyond price. They ran thus. Welcome, welcome, my dearest dear, we are happy by your coming. For your coming, welcome. Your arrival, welcome. Let us sing joyfully, 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 my boys, joyfully. The sun shines now with moon clearly, sweet light so bright, my dear boys, for your reaching welcome, by her smiling welcome. The trees send us, my dear boys, with happiness, the birds rejoice, its nice smelling welcome, in their singing welcome. I remain, yours truly, George Abraham. I hasten to add, lest the poem should be considered compromising, that its author was not George Abraham, who, as I found in the negotiations over the hen, had no word of English. Kaimet had merely used her husband's name as forming a more impressive signature than her own. Moreover, the boys she alludes to were a rhetorical figure. I can offer no suggestion as to what it was that the trees sent us, the text appears to be corrupt at this point. Perhaps us should be taken as the accusative. It was with real regret that I left Seleucia. Before dawn, when I went down to the sea to bathe, delicate bands of cloud were lying along the face of the hills, and as I swam out into the warm, still water, the first ray of the sun struck the snowy peak of Mount Cassius that closed so enchantingly the curve of the bay. We journeyed back to Antioch as we had come, and pitched tents outside the city by the high road. Two days later, we set off at 6.30 for a long ride into Alexandretta. The road was abominable for the first few miles, broken by deep gulfs of mud, with here and there a scrap of pavement that afforded little better going than the mud itself. After three hours, we reached the village of Karamurt, and three-quarters of an hour further we left the road and struck straight up the hills by a ruined khan that showed traces of fine Arab work. The path led up and down steep banks of earth between thickets of flowering shrubs, gorse, and judas trees, and an undergrowth of cystus. We saw to the left the picturesque castle of Bagras, the ancient Pagrai, crowning a pointed hill. I do not believe that the complex of mountains north of Antioch has ever been explored systematically, and it may yet yield fragments of Seleucid or Roman fortifications 
that guarded the approach to the city. Presently we hid upon the old paved road that follows a steeper course than the present carriage road. It led us at one o'clock. We had stopped for three-quarters of an hour to lunch under the shady bank of a stream to the summit of the Pass of Bailon, where we joined the main road from Aleppo to Alexandretta. There was no trace of fortification, as far as I observed, at the Syrian gates where Alexander turned and marched back to the plain of Issus to meet Darius, but the pass is very narrow and must have been easy to defend against northern invaders. It is the only pass practicable for an army through the rugged Mount Amanus. The village of Bailan lay an hour further in a beautiful situation on the northern side of the mountains, looking over the Bay of Alexandretta to the bold Cilician coast and the white chain of Taurus. From Bailan, it is about four hours' ride to Alexandretta. As we jogged down towards the shining sea by green and flowery slopes that were the last of Syria, Mikhail and I fell into conversation. We reviewed, as fellow travelers will, the incidents of the way and remembered the adventures that had befallen us by flood and field, and at the end I said, Oh, Mikhail, this is a pleasant world, though some have spoken ill of it, and for the most part the children of Adam are good, not evil. It is as God wills, said Mikhail. Without doubt, said I, but consider now those whom we have met upon our journey, and think how all were glad to help us, and how well they used us. At the outset there was Najib Faris, who started us upon our way, and Namrud and Gablan. Mashafa, interrupted Mikhail. Gablan was an excellent man. Never have I seen an Arab so little grasping, for he would scarcely eat of the food that I prepared for him. And Sheikh Muhammad and Nasar, I pursued, and his nephew Faiz, and the Kaimakam of Kalat el Husun, who lodged us for two nights and fed us all, and the Kaimakam of Drekish, who made a great reception for us, and the Zaptia Mahmud. Mikhail gave a grunt here, for he had been at daggers drawn with Mahmud. And Sheikh Yunus, I went on hastily, and Musa the Kurd, who was the best of all. He was an honest man, observed Mikhail, and served your excellency well. And even Rashid Aga, I continued, who was a rogue, treated us with hospitality. Listen, O oh lady, said Mikhail, and I will make it clear to you. Men are short of vision, and they see but that for which they look. Some look for evil, and they find evil. Some look for good, and it is good that they find, and moreover some are fortunate, and these find always what they want. Praise be to God, to that number you belong. And, please God, you shall journey in peace and return in safety to your own land, and there you shall meet His Excellency your father, and your mother, and all your brothers and sisters in health and in happiness, and all your relations and friends, added Mikhail comprehensively, and again many times, shall you travel in Syria with peace and safety and prosperity, please God. Please God, said I. End of chapter 14. Recording by Tad Davis. End of Syria, the Desert and the Sown by Gertrude Bell.